And there's Kodai Senga. And there's his first strike out of the night as he gets Goldschmidt looking. And wind goes down on strikes. Good splitter there by Senga. And he struck him out. Mm. Went back to the cutter to get him. And Senga has his third strike out of the night. Second time he's got Goldschmidt. Boy, just not much of a cutter here. And a swing and a uh -huh. miss at another fork ball. So Senga keeping that in his back pocket for this third time around yes. the order. One, zero, four, three. Strike three called. Burleson down on strikes. That's five Ks for Senga, who's retired nine straight. He's up nine one after seven. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, August the 20th, 2023. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show up on podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I also want to give you my Instagram, Talking Mets No G, and I want to thank the good folks from the Fan Sided Podcasting Network for sponsoring the show. Uh, welcome to another edition of the program, and let me guess, let me guess, you woke up this morning a little giddy, right? You didn't want to hear about Mets math, or well, you know, I gave you that Mets math way, way, way back, telling you how hard it would have been for the Mets to make the playoffs, but Mets were eight games under five hundred. Six games out, you were seeing them pop up on wild card standings on the program. You're like, ah, look at Miami not playing well. Cincinnati's not great. Arizona's not great. The Cubs, I mean, they can't keep up with the Cubs. And you had a little bit of hope. And then obviously you saw why the 2023 Mets are a disappointment because their starting pitching is just not up to snuff. Cookie Carrasco uh, at the top of that list, along with some others. And you got slammed back down to earth. But, you know, as we go through the dog days of August and extended garbage time, because regardless of what we think and hope and we want to put up standings about the 73 team and, and dream, look, that's fine, man. I mean, look, I have gotten so many letters, great letters from individuals. And, you know, I don't like to just give out people's names unless they tell me it's okay sometimes. But, uh, you know, thanking me for the show, thanking me for kind of keeping them engaged. And, and actually, people, more than one, who have talked about the energy of the team and how much they actually now enjoy watching this club. Even Keith Hernandez was talking about it on the broadcast, I, I believe, on Saturday night, how he saw the Mets defensively showing energy and playing a lot like the 2022 team. You still have the same manager. You still have the same manager who I believe still would hold the same expectations. But I look up at the standings. I look up at the wild card. I look at this. You know, this is only the second year of the three wild card scenario. And, you know, in the American League, you got a pretty high bar there. You got, you know, a couple of teams at 14, 15 games over 500 playing 550 baseball. Uh, you know, in the National League, the bar is a little lower. The Cubs only five games over. The Giants six games over. Phillies 10 or 11 over. You know, even teams that are playing at an 87 to 91 clip, these are not high bars with a somewhat competent team 
to make the postseason. And I still say, after they had spl- – and, and I know, look, I'm not here to second-guess Billy Epler anymore. I, I believe it was the right decision. If you look at Verlander, since he's gone to Houston, the, the, the line isn't great. Yeah, he's winning. Yeah, he's competing. Yes, he's still Justin Verlander. But you look at the walks, you look at the lower strikeout rate, and you have to say to yourself, for a guy making $43 million a year, Mets were expecting a dominant Cy Young ace, maybe not vintage Verlander, but not somebody who represents more like a number three starter. I mean, let's face it, Kodai Senga's numbers, his peripherals are way better than Verlander's. Now, Scherzer started to percolate, and I expected that, but throughout the entire first half, all the way into the, all, uh, the trade deadline, anytime Scherzer faced a good team, Especially on the road, it seemed like he turned into a Cookie Carrasco over there. And he was hanging slider after slider. So you really can't question that. But you start to think to yourself, a team like the Mets with these two aces, with these two guys at the top of the rotation, with an emerging Kodai Senga who has proven me wrong, 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 wrong. I mean, could Senga be... I mean, that's the best version you could have expected out of Senga, Right. And then with Quintana coming back into the mix and giving you quality start after quality start, and yeah, he was still short, probably a pitcher in the five spot, but I think that if they were in contention, you could have figured something out with Lucchese and McGill and Peterson and openers or, or perhaps something. You know, Carrasco maybe, you know, is a different p- pitcher with some juice, with something on the line. You never know. When you start to look at that, Especially the trading of the two pitchers. You know, maybe Pham and Canna and Robertson, who was a big piece. Maybe you could even said, hey, you know, you could have traded those guys, got value, maybe even made a trade to bring back, you know, comparable players to fill different spots in the bullpen and corner outfield. You know, not like Canna was having a great year, Pham was. You say to yourself, who knows what could have happened? Because immediately this team went into the tank in Kansas City and Baltimore right after the deadline. The energy was sucked out of the balloon. Everything was sucked out of the balloon. So you start to wonder, you know, could this have been different? The Mets had played 600 baseball in July. Now, that's looking backwards. Woulda, coulda, shoulda is not going to get it done. We all know if they had won three or four, maybe even five, not asking a lot. We're not asking them to have a winning record. Games during that tough tough stretch in June, it would have been a different ball game at the deadline. I believe the Mets go for it. I don't think that they... You know, sit back and rip the farm system farm system apart. But I think that they go for it, and I think that this is a different conversation, and we're having a way different conversation right now here on August twentieth. But now you look at the haul they got, you know, and I'm not going to get too deep into prospect rankings. I really don't care what this site and that site and this analyst. You know, it doesn't really matter. The Mets have an improved farm system, and I think there's a lot of guys arms that are going to be start to be talked about. That could be bullpen arms, perhaps, uh, depth starters, maybe backup outfielders, component offensive players. I think you're going to start to see more names pop up because as I start to study and look at different individuals who are sharing information about the system, there seems to be under the radar, not top 10, not top 15 prospects that look interesting and are at double A. And you're not too far away from seeing that if perhaps they can be uh, additions to the 40-man as early as next year, maybe even if it's later in the year. So now that you have, and and let's let's the Mets' decision was the probabilities of making the playoffs were not ones they liked. 
they were able to land top talent by using Steve Cohen's checkbook. Maybe they don't do all this if they don't get these prospects. And the only way they got these prospects is if Cohen ate salary on these guys. So they bought themselves prospects. They bought themselves Drew Gilbert. They bought themselves Ryan Clifford. They bought themselves Luis Angel Acuna. They bought those guys. And I think the pressure is on. And in a way, everybody could criticize Billy Epler for his inactivity at the deadline last year. Maybe you don't like how he constructed this roster. You certainly could, you know, it's not much of an argument. You could certainly say he doesn't doesn't really have any charisma when he sits there and he talks to the press. But his job, whether they bring in Stearns or another president of baseball operations or not, his job will be won or lost based on this deadline. Because Steve Cohen asked him his thoughts. He laid out the math. The math indicated that they didn't have a great shot at making the postseason. And that next year, those two aces were a year older. They didn't like some of the peripheral numbers they saw, especially on Verlander. And they figured, let's jump on this before you know we have an expensive hood ornament or a bad sunk cost contract very quickly. You don't want to have the Robbie Cano contract with a worthless asset when you're paying your one and two aces $43 million a year. So you really... They re- he really needs to be right on these guys. You know, now, do I? does he need to have all three of these guys hit? I'm not saying that. But they really need Acuna to be this versatile, top-of-the-order spark plug. Maybe he's not his brother, but they need that. Drew Gilbert, who looks like he might be the best of all three. He excites me. I mean, the guy looks like he's a pure hitter. He's got grit. Looks like he's a pretty good outfielder. He looks like a guy that, along with Acuna, could bring a lot of energy to this this club offensively, and especially with Acuna's speed at an element that they quite simply do not have and have not had, even when Marte was in the lineup. That's one of the reasons why they brought Marte over, but for because of his injuries, really, even when he's been on the field and been productive, speed has not been part of his game, and that was why they brought him over. And then Clifford, that's you know a wild card where maybe you got yourself another uh, elite power threat, especially from the left side, and he could be a left-handed Pete Alonso. I mean, he's hitting balls in in Brooklyn that you know, quite honestly, nobody really hits the ball like Clifford is hitting Brooklyn because of the way that that ballpark is, the kind of pitcher's ballpark it is. It's right off the water over there in Coney Island. I, I haven't even gotten to the four or five or six arms out there, one of which Mike Vazel had a great outing and started to pitch better at AAA. Might, somebody we might even see this year, hopefully see this year. Um, so you really are banking on these guys being not just component players, not just nice additions and assets that they get flip. Guys that could help this team as soon as maybe next year, maybe not an opening day, but pretty soon, offensive pieces. You know, especially with a guy like uh, potentially Gilbert or, you know, even, uh, you know, Acuna. You know, it looks like Brandon Nimmo might need need to move to a corner. We don't know what the health of Mar- Marte is going to be. You know, they're going to need maybe a center fielder. They're going to need maybe somebody at the very least to spell Marte a couple of times a week if that's where this arc of his health has taken him into late prime. You know, maybe he's still going to be productive, but he can't play on day games after night games. Or maybe he needs you know, two or three days off a week to stay productive and healthy. We don't know. These are a lot of things that are out there. So these are the kind of players that are going to have to play into that. And and we'll get into it after the break, despite the fact that Max Scherzer has reported numerous times and the Mets have kind of already 
downgraded their expectations for 2024. Most people in the game don't believe that Steve Cohen won't be trying to go out and get himself an Otani or spend to fill obvious gaps with the right free agent. Or perhaps, you know, dreaming of a Far East rotation, which is something that we'll get into. So, with that, you know, you have to be right. You know, the the, the real thing here is, if you're going, I know it was one, an opportunity that probably was low percentage. But the team was starting to play the way that you envision from the start of the year. 600 baseball. And... They ripped that apart right when it was starting to get good. And you have to think, you know, what you see out of Scherzer, is he energized because he's in a pennant race? Maybe getting out of New York, maybe the the weight of expectations uh, was even sucking up Verlander and, uh, excuse me, and Scherzer and engulfing him. Maybe that was part of it. You know, we don't know. But you got to be right because you don't get many of these opportunities. And in a three wild card world, it truly has turned the postseason into a tournament. Look at the Phillies. And you see what the Mets have. You see what they have with Senga now hitting his stride and with this, the solid pitching of Quintana. You know, the Mets would have had a really decent foursome, even with a not-vintage Verlander, that could have made noise in the postseason. I really believe that. And I would have liked to see it. Now, these teams, Texas, Houston, made the Mets offers they couldn't refuse, so to speak. So again, that's water under the bridge. But... This really is going to be the make or break for Billy Epler. If a year or 18 months from now, these guys turn out to be another Dom Smith or they're struggling like a Brett Beatty is and there's no end in sight or you, you, you start to question if they, they have the ability to be productive or even big league players, if they wreak anywhere near 4A, that woulda, coulda, shoulda is going to come up. People are going to ask, and the media is going to ask, why didn't the Mets, who were starting at their stride, who were going into Kansas City after taking three of four from Washington, who could have had Scherzer and Verlander in the rotation when they went into Baltimore and some of these other cities, when guys like McGill and Peterson are getting the bulk of the starts and their place down the stretch, and both of those guys are completely been 4A, sometimes worse than 4A at times this year, that's going to come up. And that could be the difference between Billy Epler making it in this town or not, depending on how these kids produce, because these are going to be signature trades for Epler. Now, maybe they don't all produce, or maybe none of them produces, and there's guys in the system that start to make strides, and then, you know, we don't even think about it if the Mets are competitive. But I still believe that the, the expectations for those three are huge. That's a ton of pressure on these guys because of the opportunity cost of what the Mets gave up. You know, I don't get too big into these fan graph and all these other, you know, percentages. I mean, I don't know how they even come up with some of this stuff. How do the Mets have a 3% chance of making the playoffs and the Yankees 1%? Probably strength of schedule and all, you know, it's, it's almost like like everything else, there's an algorithm, right? There's some AI that's doing it. All I know is what my eyes saw. And I started to see the 2023 Mets come together in July. And what the real kick in the you-know-what is, is all they had to do was play mediocre instead of 62 Mets level bad in June. And it's not the first time we've seen a June swoon from these guys. We saw one of those a few years back when Mick Calloway was the manager and they had gotten off to a fairly decent start. The other thing as we head towards the back half of the year, you know, everybody likes the energy that they see out there. 
You know, they like the fact that, you know, you get to see a DJ Stewart show his fare and Ortega, you know, another four-eye guy, you know, all these, you know, Castro hitting home runs, Abraham Almonte. I mean, these are guys largely that are journeymen uh, at the best case scenario. Maybe they are on tryout for uh, a job off the bench or maybe if they have options, they want to go to AAA and be that veteran who gets paid well to sit AAA in Syracuse and perhaps get the call when there's an injury. Maybe that is perhaps part of all this. But I know everybody likes the energy they see. I know that they like this team. A lot of people have told me they like this team better now than when they saw them the first 90 or so games of the season. Of course, McNeil has been McNeil and Lindor has been elite and Alonzo's back to being Pete Alonzo and Brandon Nimmo after a little bit of a, a rough patch for about a month and a half. You look up and his numbers are right where you would historically expect him at the top of the order. So that plays a lot into it. But it goes to show you how expectations around this team, the burden of expectations, the stress of being a favorite, of being this team that spent all this money with this owner, I think it got to everybody. I think it got to the players. I think it got to the fans. And in a lot of ways... It may, you know, the fans' dream all these years was to have an owner that had an open checkbook. And they weren't even asking for what they got with Steve Cohen. No, they were just asking for, hey, push that payroll a little bit towards the the, the luxury tax. Push it towards the luxury tax. That's it. That's all I ask. Being on big free agents. Don't just go and give B money to C free agents. And we we as a as a fan base, the media, everybody in this town that covers the Mets. You got that and then some. And I think it stressed people out. I remember when the Correa deal went down, how some people went, well, this isn't fun. The Mets are stacking the deck in their favor. Never say that because, as you can see, you just don't know. You're never really stacked in baseball in your favor. Too many variables. This is not the NBA. You can't just get three superstars and figure out the rest of the roster, like what the Phoenix Suns are doing or what the Miami Heat did many years ago. You have too many opportunities for things to go bad. There's too many positions to fill. You can't put a star everywhere. You're still going to have games being decided by your fourth or fifth best reliever because you've burned through your top guys on a road trip. So there's always going to be pitfalls. There's always going to be soft spots of every roster. Nobody's stacked. Really, I really believe that. I mean, maybe there's some exceptions in the history, but nobody's stacked. At this point. So it goes to show you how hard it is. As I've been saying to play here. But I do believe. And I know everybody's been talking about tanking. And how they. You know they all don't want the Mets to fall 10 slots back. Because they're over the luxury tax. And if they're in the top 6. They won't have that problem. And they'll get a top pick. And it would be nice to get a top pick. But I looked at the quote unquote tankathon here. And I look at teams like. Washington and Pittsburgh and the Cardinals and the Rockies. You got Oakland in there and Kansas City and the White Sox, Tigers, Indians, you know, the Yankees maybe with their eight-game losing streak hovering around. But, you know, the Mets, even at this point where they're very shy in starting pitching, thin in the bullpen, probably two or three bats short on some nights in the lineup, they're still not that bad to be a top six bad team because you have, unless they start to sit Alonzo and Lindor and Nimmo, 
they have this core of offensive players and a couple of nice veteran arms in Quintana and, and maybe Luke Casey and uh, obviously Senga, who's not a veteran here in the States, but you know, he's 30 years old. He's not a spring chicken. Where it's going to be hard to tank. And then you add in the human element, which is if you expect for this organization to get better and grow, if you expect them to even come close, forget about contending in 2024 as early as 2025, and you want to incorporate some of these young players that you just acquired into the mix, don't you want them to be in on a team that has veteran leadership, a desire to win, a positive clubhouse. You know, the record is not necessarily what I'm concerned about. You saw some ugly baseball against the Braves. The Braves are the best. They're probably the best team. They're not probably. They are the best team I've seen all year. You know, they're better than the Dodgers. I think the, I know the Dodgers are, are catching up in record. They've been playing better late, but I think the Braves are better than the Dodgers. Everybody else I looked at, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and even Baltimore, too. And I haven't seen Texas play too much or Minnesota, who are in the playoffs. Tampa, I saw them earlier in the year when they came to City Field. And I said, all right, they're good teams, and even Houston to a certain degree, but there's nothing there that just blows me away. I mean, Atlanta was the one team that seems to be riding at the next level, at that elite level. And we'll see. You know, still really relying on the home run, and that tends to be a little bit harder to come by in a short series. So... You know, you look at that and you look at the Mets and you say, you know what, they, they they need to continue to push to win. Not to tank, to win. Because that's how you build culture. That's how other players see a team like this and say, I still want to play here. You still have to sell people on the vision. Look, Cohen did it to Scherzer. Cohen did it to Verlander. He was able to, you know, over the last couple of seasons, when they want to go out and get a big fish, he's able to get into that Zoom call or that meeting and sell them on what's going on. And last offseason, he had 101 wins, despite the disappointing end of the season, in his backpack to point out that they're making strides. He won't have that this offseason. Best case scenario, maybe he has an 80 or an 81 win team, and that's going to be tough. That's going to require them playing at a level that I don't believe the current roster at 9 or 10 games over. I don't think the current roster can do that. I just don't. I don't think they have enough bullpen. I don't think they, they certainly don't have enough starting pitching. And it's going to require the core offensive players that I mentioned earlier to be playing and, and and really not slumping at all for the rest of the season. And inevitably, all these guys do. I mean, Lindor's been as hot as a pistol now for about six weeks. Eventually, he's going to have a crater. It happens to the best of them. So I think it's important for everybody to get in there. Yes, you want to see guys like Vazel. Maybe you want to see a Mauricio at some point or something along those lines. And I have no problem with any of that as long as it doesn't impact any future eligibility or move their free agency up or whatever. But I think it's important for the rest of the year not to tank, not to root for them to lose, root for them to play as crisp and as well as they possibly can so that going into 2024, and after the break we'll get into that, if the reports are true that the Mets are still going to want to spend to put out a competitive team. And as I mentioned earlier, you look at the three wildcard system. Look, the Braves could win 105, 106, 108 games. It's not going to matter because if you're one of those three wildcard teams, you're in the same tournament that they're in. Yeah, they get a bye if they have the best record in the league. But you're in that same tournament. And if you have the right mix and you get hot at the right time, you don't know. Now, you don't want to build yourself just to be in the muck. But really, the margin between in the muck and out of the muck was 
what, one game last year? 101 wins for the Mets, 102 wins for the Mar- uh, the, the Braves, or they both actually finished tied and Atlanta won the season series. So we don't do coin flips anymore in baseball. We actually do things the right way. You know, think about that. So um, I think winning is important. I think seeing how some of these guys perform and seeing Alonzo continue to you know be the best version of himself, see Lindor in his smack in the middle of his prime, play an elite shortstop defensively and, and, and show you that he is a solid, you know, maybe he's a streaky, but a very solid elite offensive player. Seeing Jeff McNeil going back to being the line drive hitter, the batting champion that you expected. Brandon Nimmo, whether he's playing a corner or a center field, he seems to be a great defensive player in both spots or a very above average, very solid defender. And he's run creating as he normally does at his normal career rate. You want to see that. And then, you know, the, me to me, the biggest surprise this year, and I'll leave on this before we take a break and, and get to Rosenthal's piece. I cannot believe, you know, when he signed, I've been very critical of Kodai Senga. But as of today, after his, and you heard the clips coming in, you heard, you know, his, again, he didn't have his best stuff at, at, at really any point. Maybe the last three innings last night, he started to become the Kodai Senga with the ghost fork and everything. But now you're seeing Senga, even when he doesn't have the velocity or his best stuff, finding ways to get big league hitters out. And when you go to baseball uh, fan graphs today and you look at wins above replacement, He's 19th among all starting pitchers. He's ahead of guys like Aaron Nola, Sandy Alcantara, Hugh Darvish, Blake Snell, who is a free agent this offseason and probably will get paid, Luis Castillo of Seattle, Jose Barrios of the Blue Jays, somebody that we were looking at a couple of uh, years ago maybe as an option in this rotation. Chris Bassett, who I wanted the Mets to bring back, he's been better then. Taiwan Walker, who signed. By the way, here's something that's going to blow your mind. Kodai Senga has a better war and about the same FIP as Shohei Otani. Yes, Shohei Otani. As a pitcher, you know, everybody talks about Otani. He is a an incredible specimen, what he's doing on both sides of the ball. Incredible. But as a pitcher, he's good. But I'm not sure he's number one. He may be a number two or three. As a hitter, he's a middle of the lineup, probably the best. I mean, he would replace Alonzo as the most dynamic player on this lineup if he signed this offseason. But when you look at that, I mean, Kodai Singa's 19th, and he's ahead of a lot. And he's right behind guys like Corbin Burns and, and, and uh, uh, you know, Nathan Evoldi, Jordan Montgomery, guys like that. I mean, he's, you know, the next step up is the top 10, guys like Cole and Wheeler and Strider and guys like that. So... It is amazing what we are seeing here from Senga, who's in his prime. You know, top five in, um, actually, uh, top 10 in strikeouts. Uh, You know, strikeouts per nine innings. You know, uh, you you just can't ask for more than what we've seen out of Kodai Senga. To me, he's been the biggest surprise. You know, things were rough earlier in the year. He had to get used to the ball. You're still going to need to make special accommodations with the six days off, six-man rotations, and that might be something they have to manage pretty much his entire career. That's why you want to get a strong you know, swing man like, you know, Lucchese could be, maybe Lucchese could be the left-handed version of Trevor Williams. That was something we talked about at times, and it just, for a variety of reasons, some I don't quite understand didn't work out here this year with him, but 
you know, that's where we're at. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Ken Rosenthal outlined what the plan is and the plan, according to those around the Mets and those around the industry, is that the Mets are not going to punt on 2024. They may not go out and sign Julio Urias or Aaron Nola or Blake Snell, but many find it hard to believe they won't go after Otani and they won't be in on other players that perhaps they can round out on shorter deals for a little bit less money. They're going to be over the luxury tax, so that's a fait accompli, but they'll still want to compete and win and, and not tank. And you know that's music to the ears of everybody, especially me, who thinks that right now, with what's going on in this town, with the Yankees on a losing streak, we talked about the baseball malaise. The Mets have a golden opportunity where the team across town is very confused about their identity and where they're going and experiencing things that Yankee fans have never experienced, things that were going on in this town in pinstripes when George Bush's father, Bush 1, was president, before Bill Clinton was president, before you know Rudy Giuliani was mayor in this town, before anyone knew about the core five, you know, before anybody knew about Derek Jeter. It's been a long time since things like that have uh, gone on across town. So the Mets have a golden opportunity. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more about the Mets in 2024 right after this. He plays here, how much pride he has taken in that. How much he cares about it. Tellez goes down swinging. Nasty. That's a good split right there. Oh, my goodness. Look at this thing drop right here. Down under. Not much Tellez can do right there. All right, we're back. So... 2024, everybody's, since the deadline had the Mets punting, we're starting to see some reporting, not speculation, reporting. And Ken Rosenthal, The Athletic, he came out with this piece, oh, about 10 days or so, uh, talking about how the Mets won't be silent in free agency. And he brought up the name uh, Yoshinobu Yamamoto. Now, geez, you think I said that right? You <laughs> know? You better go check that out. I'm not going to go do the uh, the translator on Google. Yoshinobu Yamamoto. I think I got that one right. But I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think. Because I said this. The Mets, yes, the owner's going to spend money. But when you start to look at what's out there, free agency-wise, especially with pitching. Because when you look at the Mets, you know they have a really good core positional player. You know, Alonzo, McNeil, Endor, Alvarez you could put in there, Nimmo. You know, you really, you can't get rid of everybody. You can't rebuild the entire core. Now, we had the debate about trading Alonzo, and I think the more that you hear about the Mets competing, I can't see them trading Alonzo unless somebody makes them an offer they couldn't refuse. Uh, the earliest I could see them doing is if they're at it at the deadline next year. Maybe they do that, head him heading into his free agency year, see what they get at that point. You know, do the same strategy they did this year, pay the rest of his salary for the year and get prospects. You're basically handing Alonzo to a contender for free. Maybe they maybe they could do that. But I just can't see it if they want to contend. And Alonzo, who, for a couple of reasons, maybe having the hand, certainly the hand injury when he got Bean played into his slump, but he was slumping even before that. You know, maybe it was something that, you know, we don't know. It could be an injury. It could just be, a, you know, the burden of expectations, whatever. Um... You know, Alonzo, outside of batting average, is having relatively 
the same season as you would expect, about an 850 OPS. We all wanted him to get to the next level. We all wanted him to be Paul Goldschmidt, the MVP from 2023-2022. But maybe that's not who he is. Maybe he's pointing more towards Konerko with more power, Paul Konerko with power. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want you to close your eyes about 2024, and we're all going to talk about Otani. Otani is the white whale. And we're going to know pretty quickly into that offseason when Otani puts himself out there. And I don't think that's going to be a short free agency. That, I believe, is going to go into the winter meetings. And who knows? You know, I think the winter meetings would be where Otani signs. But you never know. You know, maybe that's the kind of player that drags out until Christmas, maybe New Year. You know, because that happens. Carlos Beltran didn't sign back in 2005 until late January, mid to late January. So these big stars, and there was a little bit, you know, there's a Boris thing. So maybe that was a little bit different. They take some time. Putting Otani aside and that dream aside, could you close your eyes and could you imagine that next season, three-fifths, and not with Otani. Let's say Otani goes to the Dodgers or Giants or he doesn't want to do any. He doesn't want to step foot on any kind of team that does not reside in California or Seattle. You know, Pacific Northwest and California. He's Japanese. That's where he wants to be. He feels comfortable on that side of the country. Let's just go under that assertion. Could you imagine the Mets who have scouts out in Japan and Cohen who, you know, prob- you know, having his hedge fund over in Japan probably understands the culture a little bit, probably would love to import Japanese stars here with the diverse community that we have in the New York area, with the kind of marketing that it would make for the Mets over in Japan. I mean, think about how historic if they go out and they sign Yashinobu Yamamoto, who is, you know, somebody that, unlike Senga, who was a really good pitcher, this is a guy that was the Pacific League MVP. Apparently has a, a six-pitch repertoire, mid-90s fastball, split a curveball, great command. I mean, his walk, weight, walk rate's below two. I know the the ball's different here in the States, so maybe that ticks up a little bit. Um, you know, has some kind of unique training style, you know, into nutrition. This is a guy that, sounds like is one of those stars waiting to happen to come over here. I mean, so far this year through today, he's 11-5 with a 1.50 ERA. His career ERA in uh, Japanese baseball is 1.78. I mean, that's pretty good. You can't, you know, you can't get much better than that. Low walk rate, high strikeout rate. And then you have this interesting crafty left-handed throws in the low to, you know, mid-90s, a command pitcher, another guy that strikes out a lot of Play, uh, batters, not a lot of walks, and I'll probably say his name wrong, Shota Imanaga. You know, could you imagine the Mets going in and signing if, if these guys are available, which it sounds like they will be. Both are like, you know, in, in, in Imanaga's in his late 20s, you know, he, you know, uh, Yamamoto's at his, you know, early prime at 24 years old. Could you imagine with Senga, Senga who has proven that he can be successful here in New York and understands the city and understands the team and could be a great ambassador, could you imagine along with Quintana, Senga, the other two Japanese imports, and maybe you bring in you know some competition with Lucchese and Peterson and maybe a veteran gets in there and McGill, who knows, Mike Vazel. Then you could use the fifth spot as kind of this rotating thing. Maybe Blade Tidwell is able to come in later in the um, season. 
That's a very interesting rotation and an exciting rotation and a marketable rotation. And I haven't brought up Otani. You could still get those two guys and maybe Otani. Then you have yourself this Japanese. I mean, you might as well call them, uh, you know, the Far East Mets. They, there's got to be a creative and maybe you want to get a look. Start thinking of it now. You want to coin it now. If it happens, what would a Mets rotation that is predominantly Japanese imports what would he call that? What would be the nickname? I mean, we had five aces all those years ago with Harvey and Wheeler and Syndergaard and Mats and DeGrom. What would it be? Far East Mets? You know, we got the Ghost Fork shirts going out there by Athletes Logo. What kind of shirt? You know, with a rising sun over City Field or something like that? When you do that and you don't have to worry about qualifying offers and you're losing your second round pick and all the other stuff that comes out, which could happen as you look at some other interesting names on the offensive side. You know, one of the names that stands out for me, and I don't know what it would cost, he's had a rebound year, is Cody Bellinger, who's having a rebound year in, in Chicago. Now, that's a name out there. Jorge Solar, I know he's not really an offensive, uh, excuse me, a defensive player, but maybe a guy that could come in and DH a little bit, add some more power. I mean, we'll get deeper into you know, crafting the 2024 Mets at a later date. But tonight, for the purposes of August and the dog days, and getting through the rest of this extended, as I call, garbage time season, regardless of how happy we are to have the energy and 4A guys battling for their baseball lives, that is fun, hardcore baseball fans like that, it's garbage time. I mean, it, it sucks that we're in garbage time and talking about garbage time. We could sit back and dream about this Far East rotation. I'm not, I'm not even talking about Otani because Otani to me is where the offseason starts and you got to figure out if you're in it or not and how deep you want to go. I mean, it's a $600 million price tag. You're buying two players. I think you're buying more of a hitter than a pitcher. And that's going to be my hot take as we get into the offseason. You know, I don't know if you're buying a guy that's a top of the rotation pitcher consistently with Otani, I think you're buying a dynamic DH. <laughs> you're buying a DH. Now, he's a he's a good pitcher. He's a top, you know, he's going to guy that could give you number 1 number 2 starts, but I think he settles in more like 2, maybe 3. I mean, the numbers say saying is better than him. I have them there on FanGraphs. You can see him just like I can. And you know, you've seen plenty of 3 or 4 inning stinkeroos from Otani as well. But forget about that. Forget about Otani. Let's pretend he's not even an option. You have some interesting Japanese talent that potentially could be part of a revamped rotation. Finding pitching is hard. The Mets are trying to develop pitching. Do you want to overpay for Blake Snell, who was completely lost and couldn't get anybody out in a postseason game at City Field a year ago? Aaron Nola, who I've never felt was really a consistent top of the rotation force. Julio Urias is going to cost you a ton, but do you really want to commit to a guy who's been pitching since he was like 20 years old and may have some miles and has started to show some of the decline this year? What Urias are you getting? You know, you got to start to think. One of the things that the Mets did well with Scherzer and Verlander is they kept the contract short. The only contracts that you could worry about a little bit now are one Lindor and two Nimmo because they're long-term. You know, and they could potentially be sunk costs and create some payroll inflexibility down the road if that's something that occurs in the Steve Cohen world. I mean, eventually, you don't want to lose draft picks. You don't want to drop 10 slots every year. 
So you want to have some kind of fiscal responsibility under the rules of what the luxury tax are. Now, you could also lose slot money and international, excuse me, international money and all this other stuff. So there's all that. I'm not going to get too deep into that. So the real way for the Mets to go in their current situation, where they need pitching, and, you know, these are unproven commodities as great as they are, so I don't know if they would require more than a four- or five-year commitment, just like Senga, who's already passed. I mean, look, I could live with, you know, perfect world, I love three-year commitments for pitchers, but I could live with five. It's when you get to six, seven, you know, and get crazy numbers, you got to reserve those for in-prime elite stars, like what the Yankees did with Jarrett Cole, which is also interesting I think Cole has an opt-out. And it would be interesting if that actually comes into play. And I'm going to look that up before this show's over. Because I think I think he has an opt-out. And that would be interesting if he opted out. you know. And, and I think at times, Cole, who's a very good pitcher, could be slightly overrated as well you know, out there. Good pitcher, top of the rotation, will give you everything that a wheeler will give you. You know, he's a little home run prone, but, you know, so was Max Scherzer even when he was good at times. So why don't you sit back and dream of a Far East rotation? Read the Ken Rosenthal article at on at the Athletic Athletic with which basically says, hey, nobody in baseball believes the Mets are not going to spend. Now they may not go out and just go crazy on every free agent out there. They're going to probably be more targeted. Maybe they're going to look and you know shop some of the B level free agency. Japan and the you know there's still a certain amount of uncertainty with those guys. But I think we're headed off, headed for an offseason where the Japanese market, and I'll even go one step further, maybe the league needs to start looking at the Japanese market. I mean, Yoshida has been a really solid addition over in Boston. Um, Fujinami was bad in Oakland. I know he's been a little bit better at times coming out of the bullpen in Baltimore. Suzuki in Chicago is all right. You know, maybe he's, you know, he's, he's getting the same kind of money that Yoshida got, but not nearly the same results. And it's give or take as you're, you know, with the ball being different and the training methods being different and obviously culture and moving across the world here, 24 hours basically into a different culture, a different baseball environment adds all these peripheral things that make it very difficult to project with certainty. You know, so for every Hodeo Nomo that was really good and Dice K that was good for a little bit, you have stinkers out there. You have a Kaz Matsui who didn't adjust and didn't take his talents and, you know, become uh, anything more than, you know, an occasional flash in the pan of, of really good baseball when he was here in the States, especially with the Mets, you know. But the world is shrinking in this increasingly shrinking world. Korea, Japan, you know, we've obviously tons of players from South America and Cuba and things like that. Why not the Japanese market? Why not start to see an influx of Japanese players who want to put their talents on the best stage in the world. They saw a guy like Singer come here, and, you know, the season's not over, but he's proved everybody wrong. You know, he was a very good pitcher in Japan. I wasn't sure that he was going to translate. Um, you know, he's a top 20 pitcher in baseball. And statistically better than Otani on the mound. Can't hit, but can't fault him for, the fault him for that. So, this is a little warm-up, a little bit of, mental bubblegum for you about what the 2023-2024 offseason looks like. And it's very well might require us getting our buddy Jim Allen, who talked to us about Kodai Singa last uh, December before he signed, and getting him on and saying, hey, who are these guys that we're hearing that are coming to the States? Maybe we'll talk to him a little bit before the season's out. So 
Anyway, we're going to take a quick break, wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Bits Podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. That play worked for you in real estate. What's that? Get the sucker thinking with his little head, not his big one. <laughs> There's that famous Celtic defense. No, come on. You're a student of the game, I take it. Yeah. Look, Red, I know I'm still the freshman of the class, and you're the big man on campus. I get that. I respect it. But I wanted to meet because I'm asking for your help. I'm trying to build something out here, like you built Boston, like a real dynasty. And frankly, I think that would be good for the league. <laughs> what? <laughs> you think you're the guy to do that, do you? Well, I wouldn't count me out. You strike me as a happy man. You only get so many summers, right? Then here's my advice. Okay. Enjoy this thing. Milk it. For the nookie, for the attention. Leave the dynasties to me. Come on now, Red. You afraid of competition? <laughs> no. <laughs> I live for competition. But you're no competitor. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just not who you are. It's not your nature. You know, Red, we just met. <clears throat> so, you don't know me. But I grew up dirt poor mm. on bread lines. Made all the money in the world. And you think you can buy this too? No. I think I can win this. <laughs> Championships on one. They're taken. By men like me who cut your heart out and still sleep like a baby for one more banner in the rafters. Because I don't want to win. I need to. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. Uh, you probably have an idea of where I'm going. You heard the clip uh, with uh, John C. Riley talking to the commish who plays Red Orback. In winning time. And before I get to that, I, I don't want everybody to like send me hate mail and freak out. I never said that Shohei Otani is a bad starting pitcher. But I wanted you to know that when he when he's on the market, the way I look at him is obviously as a two-way player. But I think his value is the, at the age of 28 on a contract that could span you know, 10 years and $60 million a year plus, the likelihood of him pitching for the large chunk of that contract, it's not great. And I think long-term, you have to ask yourself, yes, I know he's DH, but he plays every day. And the DH spot takes away some wear and tear by not playing the field. But every day, he's, you know, he's, he's playing at this high level. And learn, you know, adjusting to the league and pitching and his body as time goes on. You have to think... That there's going to be more injuries with pitching-wise. I know we had Tommy John surgery already. Uh, you look at his numbers this year. They're good. But, you know, outside of his hot start in April, he's been spotty. You know, for as many six innings, one run type of games he's had. He said four or five innings, four or five runs. Look at his game log. And that's not taken away from the season he's had. He's the best player in the sport. He plays both. I mean, Babe Ruth is the only other comparison to what he's doing. I mean, maybe he's not top of the rotation like Babe Ruth was comparably in his era. But 
uh, you know, he's still a solid number two at the worst case scenario, or floor number three that gives you number one. And I think that's probably harsh. I think when in context of the entire contract that has that that could be coming up, I'm not sure Otani lives up to the hype on the pitching side as much as he does on the offensive side because his offense has jumped to the next level to like the Barry Bonds level, pre steroids, of course. Elite, 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 elite level. 180 OPS plus. When you start getting that Aaron Judge area at 180, 200 OPS plus, double the league average, that's incredibly, that's greatness. So his offense has gotten better. His pitching has been always very good, but I've always felt that as an offensive player, that's where his game is. And, and, And the value as a pitcher is, yeah, he's a very good pitcher and he can be there. And, and and yes, he would be a top of the rotation candidate, but I feel like the the consistency of that top of rotation performance may not be at the same level as his offense. That's all. That's all I'm saying. I'm not knocking uh, Otani at all. We'll have way more time to talk about that. And, you know, who knows what happens between now and the end of the year. And look, we've never really seen Otani in a big pennant race, unfortunately for him, between injuries and, and playing for Anaheim and what transpired there. And Billy Epler was there all the way now to Perry Manizen. I mean, it just it just didn't work out. So um, it'll be interesting. So you heard me play the clip with John C. Riley and, and playing Dr. Jerry Buss. And I'm a big fan of the NBA. You guys know that. And Winning Time. But as I've been watching Winning Time, rewatch the first season, enjoying a couple of episodes of the second season. I, and I think it's great. And it's not historically accurate. It's taken a lot of Perlman's book about the Showtime Lakers and trying to add artistic license for entertainment purposes and obviously you're trying to put a product out that's not just for the hardcore sports fan or the hardcore NBA fan you want to pull in people that could appreciate the sport but want to be entertained and want to learn about what that era is all about and be entertained so let's put that aside but one of the things if you read the book by Perlman and you go back in history to the Lakers where they're at and what you're seeing with the Mets with Cohen now I'm not suggesting Cohen is this guy that's going around town wearing jeans hanging out at Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion. There's no similarities between the people. I mean, Cohen is a family man. He's got, you know, his his father-in-law, who's 92, throwing out the first pitch. His wife is meeting fans and giving them upgrades. I mean, they seem like a really, and I've heard they're really good people to work for. You know, he's, as much as they say he's Bobby Axelrod, and I'm sure he's that guy in the boardroom. He's a shark. You don't get to where you get in Steve Cohen's world without being that. The thing that I take in terms of the analogy is that Dr. Buss, if you see that in that show, really loves the team. Now, he spends money, he leverages himself, and not only does he love the team, he wants the team to win, but he wants the league to succeed and become different. Now, baseball's at a different point in its arc than where the NBA was. However, I think the New York Mets, and I've said this, are at real inflection point in their history because they haven't won since 86. They have this yoke of failure that we've talked about a billion times. And it's been built on a narrative of losing, laugh out loud Mets, lovable losers, Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football, all this stuff. And I really think Cohen is here to bring his version of what Showtime could be to City Field whether it be building up the area around what a casino and a soccer stadium and turning it into uh, you know, a destination for those in Queens and all over. 
you know, people who are interested in different things, you know, especially with how ethnically diverse Queens is. I mean, soccer, soccer stadium is brilliant. Marketing, you know, if you drive down Queens Boulevard, you could see Spanish marketing, you know, uh, on different uh, Mets-related sponsorships. Makes tons of sense in that area. Um, you know, bringing in stars, locking up the young stars, having an exciting team, maybe with guys like Gilbert and Acuna, and bringing Pete back long-term. And who knows, this whole Far East concept, pulling in a whole new fan base and marketing the team 24 hours away and in a whole other country. I mean, think about it. The Mets could become Japan's team. So when I hear some of the, you know, when I watch, actually, not here, when I watch this, I kind of think, you know, Steve Cohen is trying to transform the New York Mets in that way. And maybe part of that, if this is indeed the plan, all the reports that we hear, this Far East connection, part of that could be marketing the sport. Now, baseball's already popular in Japan, but wouldn't it be cool if the Mets became this international figure, so to speak, or team. And they're going to London next summer. You know, there's a, we learned through this show, there's a huge contingent of Mets fans in the UK. I mean, that's going to be a cool experience. Imagine them going out there with these Japanese pitchers, with possibly Otani. You know, think about how exciting that would be as the Mets are becoming a global brand in a world that really knows no borders anymore. I think it would be fun. And they'd be beating the Yankees to it. And it would be Cohen's wallet, Cohen's push to be great, Cohen's push to dispel narratives about the team. And you see the Red Orbach character. I always think of him as the commish, by the way. (laughs) You know? Um, And you see that as the league who really does not want Cohen to move forward because it would push them to push their accountability to the red line it would make them their players question their ownership groups about how committed they are and anytime somebody who comes into the club with new and big ideas and wants to make changes you know you always uh you always get pushback from the status quo so i leave you off with that thought the thought about the mets and where they're going and how exciting it could still be i know that we had a couple of rough weeks around here after the deadline, especially about how badly things turned out this season. And then you see Scherzer over there starting around into form in Texas and Verlander, despite not really putting up great numbers, winning games in Houston and fam hitting out in Arizona. And, you know, you got Zach Wheeler still pitching for a team in, uh, like the Phillies at the top of the rotation that are going to try to get into the tournament and, and repeat as uh, NL champions. The Braves come in and score 21 runs off of uh, the Mets in a doubleheader, and you're just like, you never felt further away like we talked about from a championship. But there's still a lot to be excited about. And the fact that you have some reporting around the fact that the Mets, although they're not going to be necessarily going all in for the Scherzers of the world or the next Scherzer of the world, they might be more cautious about it. They're not ready to retreat and go into the tankaroo mode like the Astros or the Cubs did. And who knows? If Japan is an option, they may be able to revolutionize the sport in a way we've never seen before by having this Far East rotation and having this global brand that perhaps transcends just New York and New York being this hub of multicultural melting pot. I mean, it's a perfect storm. It's It's even more perfect than the Yankees. The Yankees are like Rockefeller. They're like standard, you know, they're standard, they're history. 
we know the pinstripes. The pinstripes are cracking. The Mets could be more inclusive. The Mets could be more fun. The Mets could be the ne- the next version of New York baseball. It's there for them. And it's just a matter of them making the right decisions. And maybe they've already started doing that with the teardown or the modified teardown. Now it's about picking the right stars, whether it's these Japanese stars or these kids coming up. Or maybe there's something completely else that's in their plans that we're not even privy to, of course. So when I watch Winning Time, and when you possibly, and if you haven't, you really should, even if you're not an NBA fan, because it's a lot of fun. Maybe there's some similarities between the Lakers of the early 80s. Very loose. And the current New York Mets. Of course, it'd be nice if Cohen had won a championship his first year, like Dr. Buss won in 1980 with the Lakers. But uh, when Steve Cohen took over, there was no Magic Johnson and no Kareem here. Two elite Hall of Fame players at critical positions. And an NBA team is way different, and winning in the NBA is way different than winning in Major League Baseball. But anyway, wanted to end on that note. Something to think about. Gave you some things to think about today. That's what we're doing here at this show. We're trying to have some fun trying to get through dog days of August. We're trying to get through extended garbage time, giving you things to think about as we start to set up the offseason, taking a retreat back, taking a pause, still trying to enjoy baseball, trying to enjoy some winning. It's important to win, like I said, not to tank, to win, because you want to keep a positive environment and show us a lot about some players on this team that they could win some ball games. still think they're ticketed for 90 losses because they're pitching, but who knows? You know, maybe they have a little bit of fight left in them. Maybe some of these guys fighting for their baseball lives put up some numbers, albeit maybe for a short span of time. And, uh, you know, maybe they don't finish 500, but maybe they make things a little bit more interesting than we could even think. So anyway, I want to thank everybody for joining me on this latest edition of the Talking Mets podcast. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia. And you can show an Apple podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can get me on Instagram, TalkingMetsNoG. And of course, I want to thank the good folks at the Fan Sided Podcasting Network for sponsoring the show. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. For the pot.